This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land. The federal government's facing a fresh headache over its energy market intervention, with the Coalition and the Greens threatening to derail the plan. Federal Parliament is being recalled on Thursday to legislate the deal to curb rising power prices, which was agreed to by all states and territories on Friday. For more, I spoke a short time ago to our political reporter Jane Norman in Canberra. Jane, it looks like the government's going to have a fight on its hands. It certainly looks that way, Kim. Um, the government, of course, needs the support of a combination of the Greens, the Coalition or ACT Independent uh, David Pocock in the Senate. And at this stage, they're all pretty critical of the plan that's been put forward, albeit for different reasons. So under the plan that was unveiled late on Friday, Labor will cap gas prices for the next year, while the states will put a cap on coal prices. And as well as that intervention, there's $3 billion worth of sort of rebates that have been put on the table. That's a combination of federal and state spending, um, all to low and middle income households to save consumers on average about $230 a year. Now, it's important to note power bills are still going to rise, but under this plan, the government says they won't rise as much as was forecast in the October budget. Now, the response, well, the coalition hasn't formulated its formal position yet, but it's already calling this intervention a monster in the making. The Greens say they're in favour of the household support, but they're refusing to back the whole package if the Prime Minister provides support or compensation to the coal companies for the coal price cap. Uh, Greens leader Adam Band explained his position a short time ago on RN. At a moment where people are doing it tough, um, why should the public be asked to put its hand in its pocket to give money to coal corporations who have been making record profits, including off the back of a dictator's invasion of the Ukraine. The, these guys should be paying a windfall tax. We shouldn't be asking the public to subsidise them at a time where they're making record profits. And Jane, it's not just Labor's political opponents lining up to criticise this plan. Yeah, I mean, the government acknowledges that this is an extraordinary intervention for what it calls extraordinary times. So perhaps not unsurprisingly, uh, it's triggered a pretty furious response from the energy sector. Um, draconian, a declaration of war. They're some of the phrases analysts have used to describe this intervention which they say goes a lot further than what had been flagged prior to Friday's announcement. Uh, now, there are threats of possible legal challenges, uh, even uh, you know th suggestions that the energy sector is mobilising to launch a mining tax-style campaign against these changes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what actually eventuates here because, uh, you know, firstly, this is household bill relief that's being put on the table. It's been agreed to by all the states and territories, but still the APA boss, um, APR, of course, the peak oil and gas lobby, wants a meeting today with the Prime Minister and uh, the APR boss, Samantha McCulloch, um, told Irene a short time ago what her message would be. The reforms that were announced on Friday evening will do the opposite of that. They are far-reaching and represent a dismantling of the gas market that will have a chilling effect on the investment needed to bring on that new supply. 
So ultimately, it's going to make the situation worse for those Australian households and Australian manufacturers. Samantha McCulloch, Chief Executive of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, and before her, our reporter Jane Norman. One of the other political decisions made last week about Australia's energy system was to boost investment in renewables and make the power system more reliable. But navigating that transition can be tricky. And in Western Australia, there are already fears that the lights could go out during what's forecast to be a scorching summer. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. At Liz Aitken's house, electricity isn't just a must for day-to-day living. It's crucial for the running of her consultancy business. That's part of the reason why I made the effort to install batteries and solar in my house back in 2019 with a view that I did not want to be disconnected from the grid when I'm in the middle of an important Zoom meeting. When rolling blackouts hit Perth last summer, the Green Energy Advocate admits she was one of the lucky ones whose supplies were unaffected. She's worried she might not be so lucky this time around. I believe that we're on a knife edge up until Christmas. Nothing can go wrong. We're just hanging in there at the moment. Amid forecasts of a hotter-than-average summer for much of southern WA, concerns are growing about the health of the state's main power system. Andy Weirmouth is the former chief engineer at WA's state-owned power provider Synergy. I'm actually concerned this is probably the most fragile I've probably seen the power system in probably since the late 90s. The issue is that power systems are amazingly robust things, but they will only take so much and there seems to be a real confluence of things happening at the moment. A deepening crisis in the coal mining and power generation hub of Collie has collided with a leak at a major gas well, outages at several big plants and delays in commissioning a large-scale battery to put intense pressure on the grid. To deal with the situation, the system operator AEMO has had to burn liquid fuels such as diesel to keep the system stable. In the last two or three weeks there's been most nights have seen liquid fuels being burnt and as soon as an old power station man sees liquids being burnt, you know that you're on the edges. Yet the state government is confident the lights and people's air conditioners will stay on. There are always challenges in managing the West Australian electricity system because supplying one of the largest grids with a very low level of population is very complicated, but it's uh, well prepared for this summer. Bill Johnston is the state's energy minister. He says Synergy is managing its coal supply problems through imports and conservation, and it also has plenty of stored gas at hand. So I'm not saying that there won't be individual outages for specific customers, but in terms of the grid itself, it's ready for the summer. Not everyone shares the minister's confidence. Retired power chief Andy Weirmouth says the turmoil is likely to continue amid the state's plans to close its remaining coal-fired plants by 2029. There's a critical mass of coal that keeps the industry viable and as soon as you plumb below that you start to see what's going on at the moment. At home in Perth, consultant Liz Aitken says the government is running out of time. We actually need to treat the energy transition as if it's an emergency in this state. Other states are actually doing that now. We don't seem to be doing that. And I'm concerned that that will leave all of us in the lurch. Perth consultant Liz Aiken ending that report from Daniel Mercer. More than 30 years after the deadliest terrorist attack in UK history, the man accused of making the bomb which destroyed Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie in Scotland is in US custody. Only one other person has ever been convicted over the 1988 attack, but he was released from jail on compassionate grounds after being diagnosed with cancer. Now, US and Scottish authorities say Abu Masood, the man who allegedly made the bomb that killed all 259 people, 
people on board the plane and another 11 on the ground is in the hands of the United States. North America correspondent Carrington Clark. Carrington, this bombing was more than 30 years ago. Why has the accused bomb maker now ended up in US custody? Well, we're still not sure exactly the details of how it is that Mr Masood has come to be in US custody. Uh, We're waiting to get some more clarification about that. But his name became quite well known back in 2020 when the then US Attorney General William Barr unsealed documents outlining their criminal cases against him. And it now looks that even though the US doesn't have a formal extradition process with uh, Libya at the moment, it, it is a very divided country politically, they have somehow managed to get him from Libya and now take him into custody. But this has been apparently uh, decades in the making of painstaking research to figure out actually who is responsible. Uh, But it now looks like they believe they've got at least one of the men who they believe was responsible uh, for this awful event. What's been the reaction from families of the victims? Well, we have heard from a few of the of the families of victims over in the United Kingdom. And it's fair to say at this point, it does look like there has been mixed reactions. Uh, we heard from John uh, Mosey and Cara Vipes. Fills my mind with questions, really. First of all, why is it taking so long? Secondly, um, what what's he doing in America? This was a, a, a crime committed on Scottish, well, above Scottish soil, but which came to land on Scottish soil. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the Scottish legal system. To know now that one of those who's involved in the bombing is coming to the U.S. to stand trial and face justice through our legal system, I, I think that it is a um, it is something that we have been fighting for for over three decades. So I think there is a sense of finally justice for our loved ones. So Carrington, what's the next step? The next step from here is that Mr Masood will appear in Washington, D.C., in federal court to face these charges. He is facing at least two criminal counts, including the destruction of an aircraft uh, resulting in death. Uh, but we're still waiting to find out exactly when that will occur and, uh, and, and more information about exactly what the case is against him. Carrington Clark in Washington. Despite months of aggressive interest rates to battle inflation, Australia's economy has so far remained resilient, <clears throat> Excuse me, even as there's economic upheaval in other parts of the world. And that includes Australia's unemployment rate, which is close to its lowest level in almost 50 years. But how long can that last? I spoke earlier with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Well, Kim, uh, the current jobless rate of 3.4% is the lowest since 1974, back when Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister. But at that level, the jobs market is extremely tight, with the economy still quite hot, on the surface at least, and simply not enough workers to plug the vacancies. We'll be getting a critical update on Thursday, when the ABS rolls out its last major update for the year. The jobless rate expected to remain low at 3.4%, with 17,000 new jobs created. Now, these figures are known to bounce around, but economists see the jobless rate edging up a bit next year as the economy slows from eight consecutive rate rises and at least two more expected in the new year. Economic growth is expected to dip dramatically to around 1.5%. But despite slowing consumer demand, there are signs that wages are starting to pick up and that maybe inflation will start falling after peaking at 8% after Christmas. Well, speaking of inflation, it's still running really hot in the United States. We'll be getting an update on that later this week as well. 
Yes, uh, inflation in the United States has been driving sentiment around the world all year. It's expected to remain at a 40-year high when official CPI data is released tomorrow. The question is whether it's peaked and now starting to fall. One big factor is that the global oil price is sharply lower after big falls over the last few weeks. The global benchmark Brent crude lower at around 76 US dollars a barrel. The US Federal Reserve's uh, rate-setting committee meets later this week and there are growing expectations that it might start easing off on those supersized rate hikes we've been seeing during the year. Economists, though, still see a hike of half a percentage point uh, taking US rates to their highest level since 2007. The Bank of England and the European Central Bank also meet this week and not much Christmas cheer expected either with more rate rises in store. One of the big concerns, Peter, is whether Australia's Reserve Bank can avoid a hard economic landing given the global outlook. How likely is that? Well, most economists see a recession in the United States next year with Europe already on the brink because of the war in Ukraine. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe isn't ruling out a recession here in Australia and he says there's a narrow path after last week's cash rate rise to 3.1%. That's the highest level in a decade. Mr Lowe signalled there probably wouldn't be a pause and his mantra of doing what it takes to tame inflation remains. So expect more rates pain in the new year, especially for those borrowers who will see mortgage repayments become much more expensive. Peter Ryan. As many of us get ready for the Christmas period, people in some regions are grappling with problems caused by flooding. In South Australia, preparations are escalating for the arrival of slow-moving floodwaters in the Riverland region, including the town of Renmark. And in parts of central New South Wales, people will be spending the festive season in temporary shelters, unsure of when their flood-damaged homes will be rebuilt. Catherine Gregory reports. Christmas Eve won't be much of a celebration for Ugawa resident and former publican Jonathan Den. So Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, where our lease has been terminated. We had 28 days' notice. He's been running the Ugawa Central Hotel for about four years through droughts, mice plagues, COVID and floods. But the pub's up for sale after it was damaged in last month's flash flooding that destroyed much of the central New South Wales town. 90% of staff got wet muddy and destroyed and then uh, we proceeded to our house at about 7.30 and packed our house up and the water came in at 8 o'clock and then we just sat it out packing our gear in our house continuously higher and higher and higher as the water came up. Jonathan Den says the cleanup for the 800 residents hasn't stopped since. I reckon 10% of people are back in their houses if that maybe 8%. Some are still sleeping at the showground in caravans or tents. The pub's doing a bit of a takeaway trade and the local cafe has started serving coffees again, but no other business has been able to reopen just yet. The region's mayor, Kevin Beattie, says Ugara is normally bustling with tourists this time of year. Obviously, um... Uh, they can't visit now because there's not much to visit. He says the local economy has taken a hit. Some of these people uh, have been very financially hit and are going to need a lot of financial support to try and get up, get up and going again. So I've been pushing with both the state and federal government for some more grant uh, opportunities. While Ugara was hit with an extreme flash flood, towns along the Murray River in southern New South Wales and South Australia are waiting for what's proving to be a very slow-moving flood. If anything, it's actually been a good thing because we've had all the warning 
Yeah, we've had loads of warning. Um, we're doing levy banks. Jenny Richards owns Cinnamon Grove, a coffee and giftware shop in Renmark in South Australia. She says the looming flood peak means hospitality and tourism businesses will struggle these Christmas holidays. But she's more worried for vulnerable residents in the town, including one of her customers. Marge? Are you, you're, you're at the nursing home, aren't you, love? Yes. Have you been evacuated? Some aged care residents are now being moved to higher ground. Well, it would be terribly disruptive. Oh, it's a, it's a huge thing. It's upsetting for them. Her husband, Paul Hansen, is a fifth-generation primary producer and has a property halfway between Renmark and Wentworth in New South Wales. He says the water is slowly cutting his place off. But Paul Hansen is also used to flooding and reckons this one will rival some of the worst. It's just... One of those things, I've seen them before, I wasn't around in 56, I was certainly a young bloke in 74. I'm anticipating somewhere halfway between 74 flood and 56. South Australian farmer Paul Hansen ending that report by Catherine Gregory. The US space agency NASA is one step closer to returning humans to the moon. The Orion capsule has splashed down in the Pacific Ocean after a near 26-day mission to orbit the moon. There weren't any humans on board, but the successful test run paves the way for future missions when there will be, as Oliver Gordon reports. Time to splash down 90 seconds. Mission control commanders in Houston, Texas watch on as the Orion capsule makes a fiery re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Perfect descent rate reported. After 26 days on a mission to orbit the moon, getting the aircraft back is one of the most challenging moments. Thankfully, it went to plan. And there it is, high over the Pacific, America's new ticket to ride to the moon and beyond now in view. Splashdown. From Tranquility Base to Taurus Littrow to the tranquil waters of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. Alexandra Witsey is a correspondent for Nature magazine. It's a really big deal for NASA because it's kind of what they see as a sequel to the Apollo program. You remember the Apollo astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, landing on the moon more than 50 years ago. And in fact, 50 years ago today was the very day that the last two moonwalkers landed on the moon. So NASA's been for half a century not going back. And today is the first test flight. No astronauts were on board, but it was the first test flight of what they see as their next step after Apollo. 50 years on, much of the technology has evolved. It appears the heat shield built to withstand temperatures of up to 3,000 degrees Celsius on re-entry performed well. Alexandra Witsey says scientists will now start inspecting it for further analysis. You know, where are things burned? How are things kind of beat up? How fast did it come in? What kind of G-forces were in the, in the capsule? And they'll all use that to think about, okay, next time we fly this capsule, there'll be humans in it. What kind of environment will those humans be experiencing? NASA also trialled a new way of safely returning spacecraft back to this planet. For re-entry, it skipped the Orion capsule like a stone, bouncing along the Earth's atmosphere to allow it to get closer to the large Navy ships waiting in the Pacific. They came down less than 10 kilometres from the ship, which is amazing. Back in the Apollo days, you'd have to you know, send your ship steaming, you know, hundreds of kilometres to go pick up uh, the capsule that had come back. So the skip let them land really precisely off the coast of Mexico today. So when can we expect to see boots on the moon once again? Alexandra Witsey says Artemis's next flight will be an orbit mission with humans aboard. But plans are afoot for another landing in the coming years. That's like the million-dollar question right now. NASA says 2025, but... 
all bets from space policy folks so that it'll take a lot longer. So maybe uh, later this decade for sure. Science journalist Alexandra Witsey ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Australia's been hit by a number of large hacking scandals this year, with millions of Optus and Medibank customers having their data stolen. But did you know children could be just as vulnerable? Today, the ABC's national education and parenting reporter, Connor Duffy, on how tech companies are building complex profiles that could follow our children throughout their lives. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.